I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. guest back for it's probably been about 15 or 16 times we've had you back because you are such a wonderful guest talking about things that are very dear to my heart is Rick Halterman. He's the author of Curriculum of the Soul, a wonderful book full of wonderful photographs and fabulous poetry, as well as essays exploring the realm of the soul and our relationship with the soul and within the world that we live in. And he has a new book that's coming out very soon, which we'll get around to talking about when that happens. It'll be a whole new conversation, so I think it'll be fun. I'm sure it will. At least I hope so. (laughs) I'm still reeling a bit from having forgotten to click on the record start button. But uh, well, these things happen. Yeah, and and don't 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 judge yourself too harshly, Tonio. You know, there's that whole Byron Katie thing about oh, well, this is I guess what was meant to be anyhow because there was something new that wanted to come out. There you go. That's the perspective for the day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And as Byron Katie would say, how do you know if something? 
is meant to be or isn't meant to be because it just is or it wasn't. <laughs> you know, sometimes because I can get frustrated, you know, like in town, if there's holiday traffic and the speed limit's 45 and people are driving 30 and you might have an appointment or you just want to get somewhere. And I have to try and, and make an effort to get back into that very mentality you mentioned, which was like, oh, okay, maybe actually I'm being slowed down for a reason because if I speed up, somebody was going to hit me anyhow. So this is just sort of the divine's way of keeping everything kind of safe and sound for the time being. So it's sort of, it's like I, there was a great Stephen Levine story back when he was alive and he was talking about when he was living in San Francisco and he picked up a meditation teacher at the airport. And as soon as they get out onto the freeway, it was solid bumper to bumper crawling, if not stopped. And the meditation teacher got very excited and said, this is fantastic. This is amazing. Now I can really practice meditation and see how far I've gotten. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's great. But there's sometimes people are really resistant to going that far. And, and when that's the case, that's when Byron Katie's approach is wonderful. When she asks the question, well, you know, if you're stuck in traffic, how do you know if traffic should be moving faster than it is? Yeah, yeah. It, it's my agenda that's trying to push the thing along rather than like, well, you know, as they would say in Islam, maybe this is the will of God to slow everything down because we're all going too fast to begin with. Yeah. And as Byron Katie would say, when you argue with reality, you lose. <laughs> Always. <laughs> all, all the time. 100% of the time. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, actually, I, after I spoke with you yesterday, I did not go out in the holiday traffic because people have been telling me it's busy in town. And your know, Taos is a very small town. You know, maybe it's a different configuration. It's more, you know, like sort of a big elbow. But, you know, maybe about the size of Montpelier. And when it gets starting to get busy, it's it's a bit frustrating because I I lose that small town feeling of, well, I can get to places fairly quickly and I can get things done and then I get home and do whatever. All of a sudden it feels more like a city than a town. Does that happen back there as well? Oh, absolutely. Montpelier, it's the state capital, but it's a small town. There are literally two main streets and you have to take those streets or one of them in order to get through town. And when traffic backs up, there are no alternatives whatsoever. And are there a lot of people that are coming up to Montpelier during the holidays? Probably. Like you, I'm, I'm not going out into it. But yeah. every, every once in a while, when I do, particularly like around you know rush hour, around 3.30 to 5.00, it's it's very slow and it's backed up and you just have to wait. It's not bad compared to real city rush hours. I mean, <laughs> I I lived in the Bay Area for a while and drove as a courier for a living. And <laughs> those rush hour traffic jams were a true nightmare. Yeah. By comparison, Montpelier is nothing. But when you consider that we're living in Montpelier to escape all of that. And when it happens here, even in miniature, it's like, what the F? <laughs> <laughs> and tell me, 
during this last, well, two years almost, had things slowed down at least initially? And are they trying to get back to whatever things used to be? Everything's back to normal in terms of traffic. But at the beginning of the pandemic, the streets were blissfully empty. There was virtually no cars on the road at all. There was no rush hour at all. It was fantastic. I loved it. I absolutely loved seeing the world shut down. I thought it was the greatest thing. (laughs) I'm with you on that one, Tonio, because, you know, for me, um, you know, I think we live sort of, you know, similar parallel lives as far as less humans are better. And I've just have been finding in the course of my own life, in fact, I was rereading some essays last night that I'd written, and you know that the world's population has doubled within our lifetime. And I certainly feel it, and I liked it when things got quiet, and it's like, oh, so this is what the world used to look like when there weren't so many humans crawling all over the place. Yep, and less industry, less consumerism, yep. less less rush, less agendas. Yes. I mean, other than trying to stock up on a lifetime supply of toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> Which, again, just demonstrates the, the utter stupidity of humanity. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't be so harsh because Byron Katie would say, well, you know, how can you tell how things are supposed to be? Well, but there is, I think, a certain reality. And I've been feeling, you know, that, well, I have used that word, you know, stupid, because I've seen certain actions, like when I was traveling uh, this past fall in the the southwest around where I live. And I was astonished at some of the, I mean, amazing things that people were doing that were like, wow, could you possibly have gotten this far? So that starts leading into, you know, this, the thing that we were talking a little bit about yesterday, which is, well, is there really any hope for our species in terms of making it? And, you know, the thing you had just mentioned, consumerism, you know, the way that we have lost connection with nature. And, you know, I think having that with the pandemic in the background, and here we are during the holiday season, I know some people are having a hard time trying to get into the feeling at least the old feeling of the holiday season, with these harsh realities that are looming all of the time. You know, the pandemic, will we make it as a species? And, you know, ultimately this big question of how we have trashed the environment on this planet and are still trashing this environment. How how do we even look at our futures from that perspective? Yeah, I don't think people are honestly looking at the consequences of their consumerist choices and their comforts that that they've become attached to you know the consequences to the environment the consequences to the planet the consequences to their lives like creating traffic like creating economic woes like creating pandemics like creating the industries that potentially are creating pandemics because people in the know talk about how it's humanity's encroachment upon nature and its disregard for the natural laws that are what's causing these pandemics to arise in humanity and in our society because we don't know how to live in harmony with nature and to honor the natural cycles 
and to continue to live in increasingly nested levels of ignorance and to kind of gate ourselves into more and more deeper, deeper levels of ignorance and control and self-protection and isolation from nature and from the apparent consequences and laws of nature, which, as we're discovering, are inescapable. They're going to, you know, if we accepted them, we could live with them in a more harmonious way, more natural way. It would be uncomfortable at times because we're all going to get sick and die at some point. But uh, if we totally attempt to evade them, then when they finally break through, <laughs> and that's where we stand right now, we're, we're approaching that edge. We're, we're approaching that precipice where it looks like the only way we're going to get through this is by having everything collapse. And who knows if on the other side of it that humanity will survive, or maybe they'll just be small patches of humanity that survive. So let me ask you this question, Tonio, that, that, that I don't disagree with anything that you're saying, and this is, in, at least in the past, probably pre-pandemic, this was a season of hope. Do you have <laughs> I any- love I love that you said this is the season of hope right in the middle of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I guess what I was wondering is, from the reality perspective that you're presenting, which I think is very real, and there's plenty of evidence to support it. Do you have any particular hope or how do you keep going from day to day if you don't have any hope? You know, that's a really wonderful question. I am essentially optimistic because I believe in infinite possibility. I, however, have no idea what's going to come out of this or how we can, you know, make it through this or what the specific possibilities are. But I do believe in infinite possibility. You know, if we can get out of the way and allow for as much possibility as is possible, then who knows what will happen. But if we take the road of complete ignorance forcing humanity to completely break down the barriers that we've created and perhaps completely crush and destroy us in the process under the weight of our own defenses and our own constructions and whatever. If we can get out of the way, um, then who knows what will happen? Quite literally, anything is possible, but I have no idea. I, you know, when I say I think anything is possible, you know, I practice in my own life getting out of the way because I, in a way, I kind of bank on the principle of quantum indeterminacy. As long as I avoid collapsing reality into discrete possibilities or lack of possibilities, then I'm allowing for a greater range of possibilities. So my optimism lies in the realm that anything is possible on the other side. Evidence, you know, through our current state of science is gradually collapsing the range of possibilities more and more to the point where it's looking like things are not looking good at all. 
In fact, things are looking worse and worse every moment. However, that's based upon our limited ability to analyze and project into the future, which is based on a very, very limited perspective. And the more we impose that limited perspective on the realm of possibility, the smaller our ability to imagine possibility becomes. So my optimism lies in being open to the principle of quantum indeterminacy as being one of the the supreme laws of the universe. And I like that, Tonio, because that fits actually quite nicely and refers to Albert Einstein's quote that you can't solve problems thinking from the very box that created them, that our perspective is so, so enmeshed in the box. And I think this is what you were talking about with, with your guest, Olivia de Machado, that we're so enmeshed in that box to even imagine a new thing is really quite difficult because we are still living so securely in that box. Exactly. And she refers to that box as modernity. Yeah. And I actually love that term because I think it's very, very useful to look at the situation we're in and to look at what we have become, you know, the grand structure, the grand creation that we have constructed around humanity that has gotten us into this mess is what she refers to as modernity and also what Ramon Elani refers to as modernity. Ramon Elani being the author of the book Weird Against Modernity, which I had a conversation with one of my local friends, Genevieve Drutches, about a few months ago. And when you read those books, both of them, well, Ramon Elani in particular, he has a, a very scathing critique on modernity and perspective of the whirlwind that modernity is bringing upon itself in its attempt to insulate itself from nature and how the natural cycles of nature are going to come crashing down upon this construction of modernity in a big way. And it's going to be a very chaotic and painful experience for those of us invested in modernity and living totally within it. Those of us who have seen the writing on the walls and know that the inevitable destruction of modernity is coming, um, it'll be a little easier, but not easy. <laughs> We're still going to face the whirlwind in, in some way or form. I mean, many people around the world are already experiencing it with the huge wildfires that we've been having the massive storms we've been having, the tsunamis, the rising of the oceans. And so far, the actual rising of the ocean has been minuscule by comparison to what's coming. And, and all the other consequences, the pollution that's happening, the, the poisoning of our air and water and food. And it's insane what we've been doing, you know, ignoring the laws of nature, ignoring the obvious, ignoring common sense, yeah, just to perpetuate economic growth and political control and this relentless pursuit of progress, of this linear idea of progress and 
human superiority over nature and human separation from nature, which I know are, are issues that are very close to your heart as well. That kind of lament of the relationship between humanity and nature. So how have you been viewing all of this and, and how do you deal with that? I know you live on the edge of it and you can really withdraw for the most part from that. But again, you, like me, you venture into town and you interact with people and you're a very caring and compassionate and kind and loving person. How do you deal with the recognition that all these people all over the world are, are going to, you know, we're beginning to, to experience some of the suffering of the consequences of our actions and then thinking in terms of the future where it's just going to get much, much worse. Even, even if there are some good possibilities on the other side that we can survive and, and perhaps mitigate the effects of climate change there's still going to be tremendous suffering all over the world. How do you reconcile that? How do you, how do you work with that within yourself? Well, it's been helpful for me, you know, and I wrote about this in, uh, in the curriculum of the soul that first to come up with an overview. And I think like you have your own overview as well. And it's not, it's not too different from mine, but you know, there's the ego centered world and the soul centered world. And there's always been the struggle between those two worlds. And as the population has been growing exponentially, the ego-centered world has really dominated. And it's just the very things you were talking about. So it's helpful for me first just to come to some sort of understanding as far as what's taking place and why it's taking place. This is not to say that I condone it, but I certainly participate to some extent in it. And what I've been finding lately, Tonio, is rather than having such a broad perspective, because if I just sat there, for instance, and, and just tuned into the news all day long, it would be just a recipe for despair, a recipe for even considering suicide. And so I find myself having to be much more discerning than I've ever been in the past. That, for instance, the extent of my news involvement, I'll go, for instance, to the NPR website, and I'll glance over the titles of the particular articles and see what is of interest for me, not so much about politics or anything like that, but I'm really, I guess, more interested in where there might be movement. I'm not, you know, politics seems to be the last place of movement in our particular country, where there might be movement in relation to the pandemic. You know, it was interesting, I was just reading an article from the New York Times this morning, and actually they were reprinting this article, and it was by a woman who was talking about how pandemics end, and she had a big historical background. And in that article, she said there's really two pieces. The first, of course, is the medical piece, that when actual infection rates and death rates go down, that is something to pay attention to. But she said the other piece is a social piece, and that that social piece is the fear that has been created around these pandemics. And this goes back to the bubonic plague, to other places, uh, to Ebola. And the fear itself becomes a pandemic that can perpetuate things. And when people finally settle down and figure out a way that, well, we're living with this particular thing, whatever might be happening, then that fear dissipates and we start moving on with our lives. So 
I've never been a big one because this goes back to the ego-centered world and soul-centered world perspective. The ego-centered world, for the most part, from the way I look at it, is fear-based. The soul-centered world is love-based. And the fear-based world loves basically to grab us by the balls, so to speak, and direct our attention wherever it can so that there's kind of a control that happens in a mass consciousness. And that's really what the powers, you know, the powers that are taking place, that's what they want. The soul-centered world will have nothing to do with any of that kind of stuff. There's, there's all this independence. And from the soul-centered point of view, it's the divine that has the last word. And the more, like you were saying, in terms of getting in touch with nature, the more we get in touch with nature, with whatever the divine has going on within the context of how nature works, we're going to be doing okay. But I quite agree with you that even those that are paying attention to all of this, this whole thing is going down to tubes and there's going to be repercussions in, in every fashion. You know, it was, it was recently, Tonya, there was at the radio station where I work, the manager was asking me about a potential sponsor, and it was this interesting company out of, I think, Wilmington, North Carolina called Coil Electric. And what they're doing is creating solar-powered generators that also purify water. How's that for already looking at the future? Well, that would work well out where you are, where it's sunny all yes. the time. I know not so much for you as because as, I know the weather back there as well, but they're basically they're already looking at the scenario that that you have proposed, which I think is quite real and and are saying, well, you better prepare now because if you don't have these tools, you're really going to be up the creek. What just occurred to me is that's that's another example of operating within the constraints of modernity. Yeah, yeah. Try and cope with the collapse of modernity. Oh, you're absolutely right. I, I wouldn't disagree with that at all. So, anyhow, let me just so that we don't get too far down this hole because it can get discouraging. Here's a poem from Tony Hoagland. And Tony is, I mean, it breaks my heart. I think this was his third anniversary. He passed away three years ago from pancreatic cancer. And here's a poem that I believe he wrote during that period that he was struggling with this cancer. And the name of the poem is Better Than Expected. Things were not as bad as I had thought. The scrape in the fender of the rented car could be hidden with a little white paint before I returned it to the agency. The CD of New Age music, which I disliked at first, with a synthetic wind of pulsing jellyfish, does a remarkable job of slowing down my heart. Merely to have survived to this point is already the most unlikely triumph, to still be breathing and trying to improve. Things are definitely better than expected. I'm not on trial for anything. I have given up on the idea of great success. The oncologist says the x-ray shows no quote-unquote abnormalities. We're always trying to come to a decision always in a place where we are making up our minds whether the soup is good, the flour is pretty, whether we are fortunate or poor. All my life, I've been loved by women, held up by water, ignored by war. I have outlasted the voluntary numbness. I am required to remain alive. Why shouldn't I be able? Why shouldn't I be able now to walk down the street under the overhanging trees and raise my arms and say that the rain shaking down from the leaves 
is not an inconvenience, but a joy. So this is not to counter what we, we were just discussing, but again, a little tweaking, and that may be partly answered to your question that you had just posed to me, was that, well, if I focus too much on the darkness that's happening, that it is too much, really. And so how am I going to still kind of carve out? And that's why I was saying I've really had to sharpen my focus. You know, it's like whether it's doing swimming my laps, whether it's writing, whether it's talking to you, how can I keep this focus getting more sharpened so I don't get distracted by all the horrible things that can distract us and basically take us out? How can, you know, and maybe in a more spiritual way of putting it is, how can I stay more in my loving to the best I can? And, and But loving isn't, you know, in that sort of nice new agey thing. Loving could be patience. It could be listening. It could be, you know, just walking into a store and smiling. The thing that's so wonderful about the loving is it can show up in a myriad number of ways. How can I keep doing that as a practice? and still pay attention to these other things, but not let my sight and my attention get lost from the loving. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. Um, and this leads, there's a couple of directions I want to go in at the same time. I'm not sure I'll be able to, but, <laughs> but let's see what I can do. I'm glad you brought up your term loving, and the way you use that term is is interesting, and I find it very foreign to my previous experience, even though you have used that term many times in many of our conversations, it's still a foreign thing for me. And I've been thinking about it recently and trying to translate it into my own sensibilities. And Yeah, yeah. And, and what have you come up with? And my sense is that when you say being in your loving, it seems to equate most for me with being in alignment with what is. Yeah. And, and that can be stated in different ways. Some people talk about it as, you know, following or being one with the will of God or just, you know, living in harmony with what is, living in harmony with nature, living in harmony with the will of the universe. Because mm -hmm. as Byron Katie says, when you argue with reality, you lose. And if you live as you would say, in your loving, you are in a sense reaping love and experiencing love in relation to what's happening all around you as opposed to the other option of being upset about it and resenting what's happening. And therefore, instead of being in your loving, you could be in your, your hating or your resentment. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I, I think that's that's quite good what you're saying. And the other thing, because I know that this is where my teacher, Robert Waterman, he loves to use that term, he and his partner, Carrie Thorne. But I think you're quite right. We have to find those terms because just this large umbrella can almost sound too new agey, you know, that you just have to stay in your exactly. loving. But, but remember, um, there was a moment when we previously spoke and you were talking about an interview you're going to air in a couple weeks in which this doctor was talking about real healing taking place when the parasympathetic nervous system is really at peace. Well, and I think that would be another version of this loving. 
exactly. When we're in parasympathetic mode, we are in our loving. Yes. And that'll actually be next week. So for me, you could really come up with a list of a thousand items, literally, as far as what would fall under the umbrella of the loving. And it seems to me that, like we have talked about in the past, this idea of to what extent can I be fully present with whoever I am in, and, it, and, you know, and this isn't to say like, well, I'm going to walk into the grocery store, you know, wearing my loving or something, but to what extent can I be present, aware, attentive, and hopefully caring, being receptive, you know, and I love that, I, that word, and we could really work with that, parasympathetic. How could I be parasympathetic when I go out in the world and I don't have any againstness. I think, you know, another way of, I guess, would be the loving would be another way of saying, so do you want to live in grace or not? Exactly. Being in parasympathetic mode with who I am, as I am, warts and all, and with everything that is, even including the pain and suffering that I experience at times and that I observe around me. And that Remember your Stephen Levine story of of picking up his meditation teacher? It made me think of, you know, using the practice of sitting down in front of the news. Yes, exactly. You know, know, using our onslaught of terrible news, which is what the news is is so good at, um, and using it as as a meditation, as a kind of alchemical transformational meditation of lead into gold, so to speak, where you're sitting with all of the suffering, you're sitting with all the bad news, with all the horrors, and just being with it, and literally translating all of that normally fear-generating and sympathetic response-generating energy and turning it into or using it to somehow activate your parasympathetic nervous system in the face of it. Yeah. Yes. And you know, I guess I wonder if if in connection to this particular holiday, and let's let's put all the consumerism, all of that kind of, well, basically crap off to the side, and let's get into if we're talking about and I never really had a sense growing up, Tonio, because I didn't really have any spirituality in my household at all. My parents would drop us off at a Protestant church. They never even attended. And it really didn't have any resonance until I met up with Robert Waterman and his whole sense of the Christ energy wasn't so much about a human being, although you know it was certainly regarded as a prophet, but is from his perspective, it could have been Buddha, it could have been Mohammed, it could have been Krishna, any of those. Uh, but that at a particular point in time, this prophet shows up and is bringing this idea of love and that kind of loving to the world as an option because the world was doing the very thing you just mentioned, falling into that fear mode, getting entranced with all the catastrophes, all that kind of thing. As to whether it's made any difference uh, you know, in these 20 centuries since, uh, I don't know, to tell you the truth, but uh, <laughs> what are your thoughts about that? Um, well, I'll just start by saying I grew up as an atheist. I grew up in Manhattan, New York City, and I observed the world around me. And I wasn't indoctrinated by my parents in any particular way that I was aware of. 
They were not religious at all. Nobody in my family was religious in any way, shape or form. There wasn't any spirituality going on that I could see. And there wasn't any overt denial of God. There was just no conversation about it at all. But I observed people who went to church on Sunday and were complete jerks the rest of the week. So I concluded that there was absolutely no God, that the whole religious premise was completely illegitimate and false. And therefore, I concluded at a very young age that there was no God. I was I was an atheist based. I was what you might consider to be an evidence based atheist based upon the evidence that I was observing in the world around me. Yeah. Yeah. And is that still the case or has that changed in any way? Oh, that's changed a lot because my view of the world has changed dramatically. It's not that I believe in God because I don't like the term God. God has a lot of very limiting, constraining baggage to it. But I like the term all that is, which I like even better than the universe because the universe also has the uh, the constraint of usually being considered just the physical aspect of the universe and not including the quote-unquote other side, which um, is unfathomable. It's the soul side of things or or the side that the soul is the bridge to. Mm-hmm. And what you were talking about, you know, the Christ perspective or the Christ energy, that's the soul perspective of the world as yes. opposed to the, the material perspective of the world, which is that all there is is concrete and hard facts and stuff, objective stuff, and everything else is irrelevant. Like emotions are irrelevant, even um, spirituality and God, obviously, those are just delusions of a <laughs> of a very subjective mind. And subjectivity is the devil in a material world, in a way, because subjectivity can lead us down all kinds of roads of delusion. But uh, the soul perspective or integrating the soul perspective into it so that we have a, a balanced perspective where we don't reject the material world, the physical world, but we, we see it all as a integral whole, particularly while we're in a physical body. You know, once we die, <laughs> and go to the other side, so to speak, whatever that is of reality. Well, here, actually, I'll bring in, this is a poem that, uh, this is Franz Wright's poem. It's not very long. It's called A Happy Thought. And here it is. Assuming this is the last day of my life, which might mean it is almost the first. I'm struck blind, but my blindness is bright. Prepare for what's known here as death. Have no fear of that strange word forever. Even I can see there's nothing there to be afraid of. Having already been to forever, I'm unable to recall anything that scared me there or hurt. What frightened me, apparently, and hurt was being born. But I got over that with no hard feelings. Dying, I imagine, it will be the same deal. Lonesomer, maybe, but surely no more shocking or prolonged. It's dark, as I recall, then bright, so bright. 
Mm -hmm. And that reminds me that I think what we're so afraid of with death is really just the fear of the death or the end of our ego. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Before we were born, we weren't living in some existential hell of nothingness or emptiness. And when we die, there's no reason to believe that it's going to be any different than than that. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And, you know, connected to this thought is, you know, that we're so attached because of the ego-centered world. We're so attached to our identities. And that's, I think, part of the point of certainly spirit, certain spiritual traditions about, you know, meditation, about getting involved with the soul world. And that could even be like having a great conversation. It could be creating a painting, could be doing anything that you lose the identity so that it doesn't preoccupy you. The identities, yes, I mean, I guess the best thing I can say outside the reality that I'm an older white guy is I identify as a human because that's simply what I am. And beyond that, the other stuff really starts getting into almost nitpicking in a sense. And I don't think conversations get very interesting unless there's just an identity that has been so trashed and so poorly treated like, say, African-Americans or women, that they're really just trying to level out the playing field so we can all be humans on this planet together and working together in whatever fashion that may look like. And developing a practice that allows us to become fully, fully immersed in the direct experience of presence and being fully, fully in the present moment in which our even our ego dissolves into it. Yes. So, so that we're in direct relationship with the present moment with no sense of separation and observation of ourselves being in the present moment. It's a very difficult thing to talk about. It, it's, it's entering into that ineffable realm where yeah. words and language can't really put its finger on it but once you've had the experience and you and you've had the experience enough to uh be familiar with it you at least have a sort of embodied sense of it it's embodied um in a way that's that goes even beyond just the physical body oh yes and you know this goes back to something that i think we've talked about before this is the training, and, and I know I'm not talking about physical training necessarily, though that could be a part of it. The training that, in theory, all of us are doing on a regular basis so that there may be those moments when our presence is really called upon to be there. But also, I think even within the training itself, that we're going to be so fully embodied. And I mean, isn't that why the soul? is here is that it can't really experience this world without having the body as a vehicle. The soul can't drive a car by itself, for instance, but it can do it with a body. And, you know, this is one perspective is that, that those larger energies, whether you want to call all that is God, divine, whatever, that the, this is the way those energies get to experience itself is through these physical manifestations 
that the souls of, and it could be not only humans as souls, but it could be the soul of a plant, the soul of an animal, the soul of a reptile, um, anything that is living out here on the planet, that it gets, this is a way that those larger energies get to experience itself. Isn't that a lovely idea? It, it is a lovely idea. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Who knows if it's true, Tonio? I don't myself. <laughs> yeah. But but getting back to the more of the root of what you were talking about, that's what the whole practice of the Zen koan is about. Yeah. Bridging that sort of conceptually unbridgeable chasm between what we can fathom and what's beyond what we can fathom what's in this world and what's beyond our ability to conceive of and grasp and perceive. And yet there's something very magical and powerful, very powerful in addition to being magical that occurs when you fully immerse yourself into the practice of the Zen koan, when it fully short circuits our rational mind. In that instant, when that happens, something really magical and very powerful occurs. And it's, I just had the image of nuclear fusion, you know, the power, the immense power of nuclear fusion that occurs in a star. It's just a phenomenal amount of energy that can just power so much and that when we're fully immersed in that present moment, it opens up a portal. And they talk about how, you know, in physics, they talk about, you know, theoretical physics, they talk about opening up wormholes for um, hyperspace travel, that it takes a tremendous amount of energy to open up a wormhole. And in a sense, it takes a lot of energy to open up that portal of presence. It takes the full presence of our being. And to me, I get the sense that there's an infinite amount of energy there, but we have to fully immerse ourselves in that present moment and not be distracted by our mind in this realm because that just saps all of our energy because our brain just uses up, I think they uses up 80% of the energy in our body and it's especially true when we're thinking. It probably increases it to, to much more than that. And I've actually observed that in breathing practices where when I'm breathing, I do a certain type of breathing technique and almost always my mind, there's a certain degree of activity when I'm not fully immersed in, in the present moment, there's a certain degree of activity even when my mind is quiet, but I'm aware that my mind is quiet just that awareness of my mind being quiet takes up a lot of brain energy. And I see the effect of it on my breathing. But when I'm fully, fully immersed in the present moment and I completely dissolve in it, my breathing changes dramatically. And, and I observe it in the holding of my breath after the out-breath, that my brain is no longer consuming oxygen and therefore um, the hold at the end of the outbreath goes on for a very, very long time because there's no consumption of oxygen by my brain in mm. a sense. 
minutes or much, yeah. much less. Now, all of that, of course, is a subjective experience. So I can't state any of that from my own inner perspective as being an objective observation. It's a subjective observation, but it is my my observation. And I I've been playing with that for quite a while and it seems to be true and valid. I think you're talking about something quite important, Tonio. Now, if I'm going to shift the gear slightly and do the very thing you're talking about and say, put it in the terms of art, because say I'm a musician and in the context of what we're talking about, say I would do all this training, you know, like practicing and learning scales and theory and all that kind of stuff. Then when I'm interacting with other musicians, all that training in a certain sense, it's there, but it's not something I'm overtly thinking about. And this doesn't happen, of course, every time. But when a certain kind of connection takes place, the music goes somewhere else and everybody's astonished because we never could have predicted whatever this new thing that just got created. It's so special and it has nothing to do with ego. It's really just down to the art itself. It's really like, wow. And, you know, and I, like, I think it can happen anywhere, but I'm, I'm quite familiar, of course, with jazz. And when I first heard John Coltrane playing My Favorite Things, I had this sensation in my body that I, it was quite visceral that the universe was actually infinite. And this is not only physically, but emotionally in terms of the imagination and all these realms that I had never even experienced before because they were doing this very crossover. Like when you're getting to that place of holding the breath, disengaging the brain, you know you've gone somewhere else and it feels so good. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, that is such a beautiful example. Yeah. And I think this is very much connected to this particular holiday in its purest sense. Again, push all that consumer stuff to the side. What you were doing in your particular practice was creating not only there was this presence that you become aware of in, on some level, but it also is, it creates almost like a reference point that once you created that reference point in your body, you don't forget it. Even if you, even if you don't visit it again for another few years or even for the rest of your life, but it does create a reference point. And I think this is what a lot of spiritual traditions, whether contemplative prayer, meditation, things like that, it creates a reference point so that when we do go out and interact with the world, that reference point is established, and even though I may not be consciously wanting to refer to that, you know, say a meditation place that I go to when I'm out there in the grocery store, that is it going to help with my being coming more present? And that's why I think the Christ energy, the thing about these prophets, and like I said, not only Christ, but Buddha, these are people that were doing this all the time, seem to have found the circuitry inside to fully, fully inhabit that presence with going into the world. Therefore, they're in such a great position to become teachers to help other people try to get to that place as well. Right. And just their their very presence yes. is the teacher because yes. they are the actual living embodiments of the entire integrated beingness of both sides. Yes. Of being here and being there. And it's so powerfully energetic that 
it cannot help but affect everybody that comes into contact with it. Even those who are ignorant and disbelieve in it cannot resist that power. I mean, there are all kinds of stories of people throughout history being touched by people like that, people who were what we would call hardcore skeptics or cynics being completely converted in a moment by a a kind of power of revelation that occurs by being touched by that kind of energy. And it doesn't happen to everybody all the time, but there's just so many stories of that occurring throughout history that it cannot be ignored. And it's very inspiring. And as you were saying, the more we've had that experience, the more we know that it's there, even when we're not in that experience. And the easier it becomes to return to that. And as we learn various methods of getting there, it becomes easier and easier to enter that state of presence at will whenever we we want to. And, you know, you're you're really hitting kind of the nail on the head in a sense, Tonio, that for a lot of our culture, the idea of consumerism, capitalism, all that, that's the reference point inside, which is a little discouraging to think about. And to even be discussing what you and I are discussing to someone who's been completely indoctrinated with this other perspective, we probably sound like we're from another planet, which is hard. But I think people, when they, like you said, when they have this experience, you know, here there was a woman used to come, and I think she's originally from India, her name is Ama, and she would show up in Albuquerque and people would go down just to get a hug. And they said, some people would say it was just a revelation just to be touched by this person because she had so cleaned all these things up inside and so inhabited this place that you were referring to that has to do with consciousness and spirituality that you didn't have a choice but to be affected if you got near it. Right. In India, there's the tradition of darshan where you just enter the presence of such a being. That's the practice in itself. And then after that, then you can develop other practices to help reinforce it. But one of one of the greatest traditions is darshan, just entering the presence of an awakened being. Yes. And, you know, this is so beautiful because, you know, the, I think this the ego-centered world always wants to try and fix things. And, you know, that like, like I've said before, that's great with a car or your plumbing. Not so great when it comes to a relationship or when it comes to consciousness, things like that. Because those other things, the latter things I just mentioned, those have their own evolution and fixing is really not appropriate. Now, when you get into this terrain that you and I are talking about, fixing isn't even uh, contemplated. It, it doesn't, it's not even on the table because what we're doing is going to a completely different place that is beyond linear thinking, beyond those places of, oh, well, if we just throw throw more money at the problem, that'll take care of it kind of thing. Right. And beyond concepts of fixed and broken. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And I love what you're talking about here, because I think this is part of, you know, this sort of holiday thing. I think, you know, in the old days, people loved this idea that, you know, you can get cheered up during the holidays and we can celebrate. It's the end of the year. And of course, this has been a tough year. The last two years have been tough years. 
but this idea of fully inhabiting your presence and bringing that into the world that's the greatest gift that we really actually have to the world you know i mean i write these books you you certainly talk to a lot of authors but it seems to me that you know, you could certainly write a book easily, Tonio, with all of the wisdom you've gained by talking to as many people as you have, but it's really your presence as the conversationalist with these people, which is what's keeping a lot of this alive. It helps. And it, it also helps me to be able to connect deeply with my guests in yeah. terms of the conversation that they are bringing forth. And also, you were talking about inhabiting the experience of presence in relation to the world. And I would take it even a step further to cultivate that experience of inhabiting that presence even within the current state of the world, where we're actually integrating our experience of presence into whatever is. Yes, and and, and I guess... Because, again, here's this ego-centered world, which right now, particularly thanks to electronic devices, which can offer incredible information at our fingertips in moments time, but also serve as phenomenal distractions. And to what extent can we hold on to this presence you're talking about, still keep this other information at hand, but not lose sight of who we are in that presence in, in the process? Exactly. Exactly. And not to reject either side, like not to reject the outer world and the chaotic state of the outer world because it doesn't fit our desired hopes or or vision of what we would like it to be, nor do we reject the unseen world because we are attached to, you know, the physical world and the comforts or whatever security we have managed to carve out for ourselves in this world. Yes, you know, it's such a challenge. And that's why I was talking about earlier this idea of I try and sharpen my focus so that I can, you know, this world so wants to, at least our human world, so wants to keep us distracted and certainly keep us in that fear-based reality. And the thing about the love-based reality I think there is a lot of personal responsibility that goes with that. And that is part of this very thing we're talking about. How can I not be distracted, stay in my loving, which would be the presence, really, and be that presence so that depending on the circumstance, I have what you would call that full range of possibilities available to me, either to act uh, you know, it, it instantly, if that was absolutely necessary, to hold back, to be patient, to just observe, to have the whole myriad of responses available at any moment of time. Right. Like the experience of joy inside of our, our grief and tears, where yeah. we, we bring the parasympathetic moment even into our sympathetic state. Kind of, you know the yin-yang symbol where you have the seed of light within the darkness and the seed of darkness within the light, where you actually cultivate the ability to hold one within the other and to allow the continual natural cycle of things to just occur, the interrelationship between all the different elements that, of course, are part of the great 
dance of the whole. Yeah. And I guess, you know, I think the view, for instance, with Robert and Carrie is that the more people that can start embracing this very thing you and I are talking about, that's how changes happen, not so much from the fix it point of view. And there's nothing particularly wrong with that per se, but this is where real change takes place is on this energetic level rather than on the thinking analytical level. Exactly. And that's what this medical doctor, Patricia Musum, talks about in her new book, Beyond Medicine, which is the show that I'll be airing, the interview that I'll be airing next week, which really integrates all this stuff in such a beautiful and practical way in terms of health and well-being, and also brings in all the science, the, the new cutting-edge science that's been emerging to support and back it all up, which of course is so important in our culture. And, and I'm so glad you're having her on, Tonio, because I think for me, one of the collapses that, that's been taking place as, as we are living right now is the traditional way of how Western medicine has been approaching things. And we've certainly seen that during the pandemic that there was no foresight whatsoever that something like this could happen because here is health service that's based on profit rather than really just making health the number one thing. And what Patricia, it sounds like what she's doing, she's getting back in line with the idea, we're going to go back to putting health as a priority. Well, it's even more about fear than it is just profit. I mean, obviously, profit is the basis of the pharmaceutical industry, but fear is the basis of the medical industry's approach because yeah. they're reacting against what they perceive to be disease or what needs to be fixed and the fear of that, of those conditions, of the suffering and, right. and the discomfort and death that can occur from it and how our medical profession literally wages war against disease and against death and will do anything, no matter how irrational. And they make, they make the irrational as rational as possible. <laughs> That's great. To justify these really insane practices that we have come to believe as being not only not insane, but being the only relevant and meaningful practices, you know, to save life at all costs, to perpetuate life at all costs, put people on these machines to keep them alive for days, months, years, decades, yeah. even oh. after they have failed to heal them or to fix them. Yeah. Um, because they don't really know how to heal people. They just know how to fix symptoms and they only know how to fix a certain limited range of symptoms. They're still struggling with how to diagnose many of these conditions that are continually rising out of this insane soup of modernity of this world that we've created with, with all its toxic elements that we have been creating in the name of progress and in the name of comfort and control and humanity. 
It's pretty wild, Tonio. And I mean, I'll only add just one little thing that within this modernity idea and the medical system is it's now we've been indoctrinated to believe, particularly from a Western medicine point of view, there are in, in essence are two options and it's interventions either pharmaceutically or surgically. And that's how it's going to be. And I'm just so glad that somebody like Patricia is coming along and saying there really are other options out there in terms of healing. And I think other people have known that. And here, I'm going to I'm gonna bring in a Joy Harjo poem. The name of the poem is For Calling the Spirit Back from Wandering the Earth in Its Human Feet. And here's the poem. Put down that bag of potato chips, that white bread, that bottle of pop. Turn off that cell phone, computer, and remote control. Open the door and close it behind you. Take a breath offered by friendly winds. They travel the earth gathering essences of plants to clean. Give it back with gratitude. If you sing, it will give your spirit lift to fly to the star's ears and back. Acknowledge this earth who has cared for you since you were a dream planting itself precisely within your parents' desire. Let your moccasin feet take you to the encampment of the guardians who have known you before time, who will be there after time. They sit before the fire that has been there without time. Let the earth stabilize your post-colonial insecure jitters. Be respectful of the small insects, birds, and animal people who accompany you. Ask their forgiveness for the harm we humans have brought down upon them. Don't worry. The heart knows the way, though there may be high-rises, interstates, checkpoints, armed soldiers, massacres, wars, and those who will despise you because they despise themselves. The journey might take you a few hours, a day, a year, a few years, a hundred, a thousand, or even more. Watch your mind. Without training, it might run away and leave your heart for the immense human feast set by the thieves of time. Do not hold regrets. When you find your way to the circle, to the fire kept burning by the keepers of your soul, you will be welcomed. You must clean yourself with cedar, sage, and other healing plant. Cut the ties you have to failure and shame. Let go of the pain you are holding in your mind, your shoulders, your heart, all the way to your feet. Let go of the pain of your ancestors to make way for those who are heading in our direction. Ask for forgiveness. Call upon the help of those who love you. These helpers take many forms, animal, element, bird, angel, saint, stone, or ancestor. Call your spirit back. It may be caught in corners and creases of shame, judgment, and human abuse. You must call in a way that your spirit will want to return. Speak to it as you would to a beloved child. Welcome your spirit back from its wandering. It may return in pieces and tatters. Gather them together. They will be happy to be found after being lost for so long. Your spirit will need to sleep a while after it is bathed and given clean clothes. Now you can have a party. Invite everyone you know who loves and supports you. Keep room for those who have no place else to go. Make a giveaway and remember, keep the speeches short. Then you must do this. Help the next person find their way through the dark. Mm, that is absolutely fantastic. And I think that's the very thing that you were talking about earlier, we were talking about, which is, 
that it's our presence when we have fully inhabited and have come to have that relationship. She uses the word spirit. I would be even using the word soul as well, that when we have that relationship, other people know it just by being around us. Mm-hmm. And she said it so beautifully. Well, and embedded in that is that very, you know, that soul idea that that I talked about in the curriculum, which is that, you know, the reason that we're on this planet is not just, you know, to be successful and make, you know, some great name for ourselves or anything like that. In fact, you know, the old way of looking at it, it was that each soul on this planet has a gift to offer and to weave the fabric of the world. And the point is first to discover what that gift is, and hopefully there'll be teachers or people loving around you that will help in that process. Then you develop the gift so you can share it with the world. So say in your case, Tonio, you spend all these hours reading so much material, and then you get to share what you have noticed and, and start drawing things out in conversation with the authors of these books. That's doing exactly what she was talking about in that poem. Mm, yes. And that reminds me, that's the journey of elderhood. Yes. And there's that wonderful story of the four mountains that Vanessa Machado de Oliveira tells in her book, Hospicing Modernity, and she speaks briefly of in my interview with her and the power and necessity for that journey of elderhood for all of us, for the whole world, because without it, we're lost. Yeah, yeah, and we've certainly been losing touch. I mean, interesting in our culture how so many elders, and I wouldn't say it's a majority, but a lot of elders are, in a sense, like my own mother, sequestered in these retirement homes and places like that. So a lot of wisdom is, really not getting shared that could be. And also there's another level to it where many of the elders that we have in our culture have not really become elders because they are still stuck in childhood and in earlier stages of development, never quite reaching the fourth mountain of elderhood where we come back to help everyone else because we have been through the whole journey. And in our culture, we are not allowed to make the whole journey because we generally get stuck at the level of material consumption, consumerism, control, which is all based on fear and greed and avarice. And like a child who has not outgrown their relationship with the world in terms of having a tantrum whenever they don't get what they want, that they need to have what they want or else um, everything is is effed. <laughs> and, and they break down and have a tantrum until mommy and daddy finally give in or they cry themselves out. <laughs> it, it is a failure of the modern world. You know, I have an essay in the new book which is called Without Initiation. And I'm focusing on men in particular, but I think it can apply to women. Of course, women have an interesting thing, and this may be controversial what I'm saying, but between the menstrual cycle and then the possibility of giving birth, and and for those women that do become mothers, that 
there is, I think, a real maturation process. Men don't have an equivalent anymore in which how does, for instance, one get to the place of you know, moral and ethical maturity. And the old initiations really put you right on the edge. And of course, people were given certain tools, but say if you were put out on the outback of Australia for three months and you know, doing your walkabout, there is a very distinct possibility you're not going to make it if you really didn't get it together. And we don't have that kind of thing going on in our culture, and it ends up being exactly what you just described. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment of initiation that women go through who who do give birth. I mean, that that to me sounds like a very, very powerful initiatory experience. Well, that and also, you know, the thing that's interesting with mothers that from my observations, they know that they are the one being that's keeping that child alive, that the buck has to stop with them. And that's an amazing responsibility to take on. We don't have that so much as men doing that. And, you know, studies have shown, here's science that says, you know, the male brain really isn't fully developed till about age 25. So you can imagine, you know, a 19-year-old walking into a school with an AK-47, something like that. Is there any reason that a budding 19-year-old, a civilian, should be going around with an undeveloped brain with a killing machine like that in their hands. The fact that this culture even condones that is astonishing to me. Well, that's why they send people of that age to war as the front line, because they're not mature enough to question anything in in a deeply meaningful way. They generally have enough insecurity to follow orders in defiance of any, you know, humane sense of of rationality. Oh, yeah. And, you know, we don't need to go very far down this particular rabbit hole because we're we're completely in agreement. And that's still the fear-based world doing its thing. And, you know, I guess it's strange to me, just as a last word on this one little thing, it's like, well, I don't know people that actually condone this violence, you know, on, in an outwardly way, but we certainly tolerate it. And that's heartbreaking. So to twist it back to, you know, the loving rather than the fearing. And I think that's where this holiday is really hopefully landing for some people, because now even, you know, I was just listening to the news there are people that are canceling their traveling plans and all that. Maybe, you know, the virus in a certain sense, and this is where I differ a little from Western medicine, rather than always like fighting, as you pointed out, that what if we take whatever experience that happens in our life as information and then decide, oh, what is that information trying to tell us? So, for instance, if we're going back to kind of a sequestering mode, it's something that you and I are like, well, whoopee, because maybe people will start doing a little more self-reflection rather than going out and just being excited to, you know, to consume again. Or, you know, I haven't seen my mom now. It's going on three years. We talk all the time. But, you know, this is just part of the package at this moment. And I'm not going to go to freak out land about the whole thing and go, oh, woe is me. Because I really do think at a certain point, Antonio, in our culture, we've gotten to be really whiny and so comfortable in our lifestyles. And it's like, oh, I don't like wearing this mask. Well, I'm sure the mother who's dragging their child across the Rio Grande so they could have a life where they don't have to live in 
abject fear is really, you know, having a hard time too. And the whining that we can do in this culture is just astonishing to me because I really don't think we have it that hard. Yep. It goes back to that adult child who's still having a tantrum as their strategy to get what they want. Exactly. So let me give you one last poem. This is a shorter one from Joy Harjo, which is, I think, connected to this holiday, and it's called The Creation Story. And here's the poem. I'm not afraid of love or its consequence of light. It's not easy to say this or anything with my entrails dangle between paradise and fear. I'm ashamed I never had the words to carry a friend from her death to the stars correctly. The words to keep my people safe from drought or gunshot. The stars who were created by words are circling over this house formed of calcium, of blood. This house in danger of being torn apart by stones of fear. If these words can do anything, if these songs can do anything, I say, bless this house with stars. Transfix us with love. Yep, I agree. (laughs) (laughs) And again, maybe it's sort of a closing thought for me, and then then I can see what yours are. I think some people can get kind of new agey about this concept of love. And 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 very often in our sort of narcissistic culture, they want to go straight to romantic love. But no, in love, that very presence that you described so wonderfully, that's very much a part of the loving. But it could also be your patience. It could be your listening. It could be creating a great meal. It could be, you know, just saying the right thing at exactly the right time to be that present would be just the most wonderful way to inhabit that loving. That is our gift to the world. To fully inhabit who and what we are in this moment with what is all around us. Yes. In inseparable relationship. Yes. Being in love with the world, making love with the world by being fully present in it. Yeah. And not resisting it, not having a tantrum because it it isn't what we hoped for or what we wanted, but just fully being immersed in it without being separated by reactions, knee-jerk reactions of dissatisfaction, disappointment, or, or any of the egoic responses or sympathetic nervous system responses that are generated out of disconnection and separation. And you're bringing up this wonderful thought, Tonio, which is what if the world is in fact a manifestation of all these things going on inside of us, and not only as human beings, but all other living things. So for instance, in a very specific way, when I say I'm noticing war out there, you know, there's something going on elsewhere on the planet, is it giving me the opportunity to say, where am I at war inside myself? And where does that need to get cleaned up? Will that have any impact on what's going on out there? Exactly. And we can take 100% responsibility for all of that that's occurring within us and not try and take on the rest of the world. But knowing that we have an integral place within the world and everything we do within ourselves 
in relation to ourself as part of this world has an effect and has its place in the overall scheme of everything. Yes, and just like this time of year, peace starts from the inside. If we can do that, that probably will be enough. That has to be enough because that's all we can do. Yes, yeah. So with that, I wish you a fantastic holiday season. And Tonio, it is such a pleasure to talk to you. (laughs) It is such a pleasure to talk with you, Rick. Um, We did it again (laughs) after yesterday, which was such an incredibly wonderful conversation that, of course, got lost in the ether. (laughs) Yeah, this has been wonderful. And Rick, I wish you a very, very Merry Christmas and also to everyone else. And, And also thank you so much for coming back today after my failure yesterday. <laughs> oh, Tonio, it got even more focused today. I love it. And, you know, you're probably familiar with John O'Donohue's book, Anamkata, which is Celtic for soul friend. And that's exactly what you are. And thanks for being there. Well, my dear soul brother, be well. You too. Take care and peace. Peace. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Rick Halterman, the author of Curriculum of the Soul, a wonderful book full of wonderful photographs and fabulous poetry, as well as essays exploring the realm of the soul and our relationship with the soul within the world that we live in. for this magical mystery tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. Love, love.